0: with an accent the monthly podcast dedicated to sport coaching research in this edition we will get philosophical with an interview with dr julian north senior research fellow at leeds Beckett university in england we will also have our first ever phd student presenting his research and talking about opportunities and challenges of his doctoral adventure stay tuned to meet tom leader from the university of east anglia But for now, time for our main interview with Dr. Julian North. Currently a senior research fellow at Leeds Beckett, he has been working in social sciences for more than two decades. He has collaborated with the Australian Sports Commission, UK Sport and Sports Coach UK, and has also been a consultant for numerous organizations. More recently, Dr. North has focused on player development and coaching working closely with national governing bodies such as the British Canoe Union, British Gymnastics, Rugby Football League and the Football Association. In 2017, Dr. North published the book Sport Coaching Research and Practice, Ontology, Interdisciplinarity and Critical Realism. Without further delays, let's hear our conversation with Dr. Julian North. Dr. Julian North, welcome to Coaching with an Accent. Uh, It's a true pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Let's start our conversation talking about your recent book, Sport Coaching Research and Practice. Um, In this book and other recent publications, you have called for more attention to be brought into the philosophical underpinnings of coaching research. Why is this so important?
1: Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a long answer, so please bear with me. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have been an academic policy and practice researcher for a number of sports and non-sports organizations since the early 90s. And In 2003, I joined Sports Coach UK, which is uh, now called UK Coaching, I think, and this is a national lead agency for sport coaching in the UK. And I stayed there for seven years. I was in the position of head of research. And sports Coach UK was very much on the policy and practice side. It wasn't academic. And whilst I'd done some secondary school teaching, I wasn't then a sports coach, and I didn't know that much about sports coaching. Most of my my sporting research experience had been in high performance. And whilst whilst I was at Sports Coach UK, there was an unprecedented interest and investment in sport coaching from the uh, the incumbent Labour Administration, including for the first time ever in sport coaching research. I mean, it was a brilliant opportunity. There was this money available for sport coaching research and I was asked to help shape this investment to help stimulate the research base. Now, I've always strongly believed that subject matter knowledge is an essential component of doing quality research work, and subject matter knowledge really should not come second to methodology and method of partners. You need both to do good research. So in the context of this kind of research role, and especially with a new investment linked to it, not knowing enough about sport coaching was a serious problem for me. I had to learn as much as I could and as quickly as I could and this inevitably took me to the academic literature and, as well as other sources of information. Now, I wasn't new to academia. I'd done work on entrepreneurship and industrial sociology in an earlier role, but sport coaching academic research was new. I remember the chief exec, a chap called uh, John Stevens, uh, giving me a copy of John Lyle's book, uh, Sport Coaching Concepts, and asking me for a review, And I think you spoke to John in an earlier podcast. As an outsider at this stage, what struck me about the research was how very different the ideas and insights were from those with a psychological leaning, people like Andy Abraham, John Lyle, John Coté, compared to those with a sociological leaning, people like Robin Jones, Kathy Armour, Pauper, Track Cushion. They were talking nominally about the same thing, sport coaching, but they were saying very different things giving what I thought at the time was very different messages to the policy and practice community. I've actually changed my mind about this a little bit and perhaps we can get into that later. But but in my, in my role on the policy and practice side, uh, this difference was disconcerting. I mean, it would have been easy if there'd just been one set of ideas, but um, I'm not sure if you've done policy work or worked with policymakers, but they tend to prefer uh, simplicity. So, to do my job better and, and to be honest, out of interest, I just wanted to understand and place these disciplinary differences and uh, to do this, I realised that with the help of some academic friends out a spark coaching that research philosophy or what is sometimes known as meta theory gives you the tools to do this so apologies that was a bit of a long answer but to, to <laughs> but to summarize philosophy helps you understand the differences in academic accounts. It, It provides a potential solution to resolving those differences and making research more coherent and usable for the policy and practice side.
0: In your book you review behavioural, sociological and complexity streams of research. These streams have been developed in isolation, but you argue that a critical realist approach can offer a valuable opportunity for the integration of uh, these streams. Could you explain how this could be achieved?
1: Yes, well, I also look at cognitive approaches, which is a major disciplinary position in sport coaching research, and there are also other approaches as well, what I've called strategic functional, and there's also normative approaches, which tends to deal how coaching should be rather than how it is. So first up, I'm not really sure that these approaches have developed in isolation. Sport coaching research is a kind of complex network of ideas. Uh, um, there are not really that many active sport coaching researchers, though it does seem to have grown a lot in, in, in recent years. And sociological researchers can often work with complexity approaches, and cognitive researchers can also work with complexity ideas. And both sociological and cognitive researchers offer normative positions. Sociologists also work with behavioural approaches. So, to borrow from the, the philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, in sport coaching, to my mind, is in kind of very much a pre-paradigmatic phase. There's lots of heterogeneity, and single researchers often pursue ideas across a range of disciplinary boundaries. Saying that, and it takes a lot of detailed reading and unpicking, but particular types of research, behavioural, cognitive, complexity, sociological, can be identified, and they tend to have particular underpinning literatures identifiable ontological, ontological perspectives, largely aligned epistemologies and methodologies and clearly identifiable prescriptive ideas. So even though they may have undertaken this work may have been undertaken by the same researchers, they can kind of these positions do different types of work.
0: So uh, coming back to my question, how can we integrate ideas across perspectives?
1: So yeah, I mean, again, it took me years of reading to see the patterns, but despite a rhetoric of difference between disciplinary positions, and academics do like to bash, bash each other up before laying out their own ideas, a number of key similarities exist in almost all disciplinary accounts, and I would argue we'd be hard-pressed to sensibly think about sport coaching without them. So if, you, if you'll indulge me for, for a second, I'll just try to summarize what there are, and <laughs> the, the, the six of them as I, as I see it. So the first one is um, uh, sport coaching has depth, and so like sport coaching is a bit like an iceberg. Much of what's important really tends to be hidden from view. So the processes of athlete learning, the characteristics and structures of social relationships around the coaching context, and as individual coaches, knowledge of the action, the reasoning, resources that underpins the coach's actions. A lot of that tends to be tacit, obscured, or hidden. So that's the first one: coaching has depth. Second one, uh, sport coaching is embedded, complex, and contextual. So uh, when we talk about sport coaching, we're not just talking about coaches, but a range of stakeholders, places, artifacts. When they come together, it means that no two coaching events are ever exactly the same, although there may be many similarities, and there often are. But we need to understand and negotiate this kind of embedded complexity. The third one is goal orientation, so sports coaching is goal orientated and I mean it's a bit of a, a controversial issue but whether or not we think um, sport coaching instrumental or not coaches are there to do a job and a job that defines them as sport coaches and this job can be broken down into smaller and smaller jobs and tasks that feed into it so I'm a football coach if I want to improve and develop my players I better make sure that they have the opportunity to play football that they're encouraged to engage in sessions and activities that are appropriate to their development, that they feel happy and motivated, and that the parents are happy, and so on. And things go wrong in coaching all the time, but it doesn't stop it being goal-orientated. I mean, to my mind, without goals, sport coaching would be meaningless, which is what distinguishes it. So the fourth one, then, is uh, sport coaching is resource dependent. So to achieve goals and in an embedded coaching context, sport coaching stakeholders draw on resources. For example, a coach's knowledge and beliefs based on their experience or their social example, interaction is one example of this resource. Everyone knows this one. There's a great deal of research on coaches' knowledge. But resources are also kind of developing groups. And when I first started working with the players I'm working with now, this was about three to four years ago, we didn't know each other, but three to four years on, we know each other much better. And this knowledge of each other, this kind of interpersonal or group resource, provides a crucial platform to work from it and to negotiate the ups and downs of player development and coaching. And this, this kind of this study of, of group resource has been a focus of ethnographic, sociologically orientated research, and it doesn't always say positive things about what goes on in those coaching contexts. Coaches also draw on resources from outside their mental structures and from outside their immediate groups, so institutional resources in clubs and academies, strategies, policies, traditions, ways of doing things. There's Governing Body and kind of like funding agency coach development and education resources. And of course, from our point of view, is Academic Research as well, which is just another resource available for coaches. All these resources help to inform for better or worse sport coaching. Resources provide a base. It's where sport coaching comes from, but not necessarily where it's going to. Sport coaching is an inherently creative uh, process. And these creative activities and practices inevitably help to challenge and redefine the existing resources. So sport coaching is always a continual cycle of both, I would say, reproduction and transformation. So number five, um, sport coaching involves, engages with reasoning, reflecting and strategizing. So building on what I've just said, coaches don't directly map their existing knowledge and beliefs onto their future coaching. They ruminate, reason, reflect on what they want to achieve and how they will achieve it. Weaving or assembling a complex array of ideas, both tacitly and explicitly, before committing to particular decisions, decisions or strategies, this is both an individual process described by the cognitivists um, like Andy Abram and Dave Collins, or a collective relational process as described by complexity and sociological researchers. There's a lot of research across the disciplines that's focused on these processes. There's also a body of research that seeks to find patterns and strategies that the coaches use. And these strategies have been found in policy documents such as the International Sport Coaching Framework. So, finally, six. Um, so, after the kind of reasoning, reflecting, and strategizing, sport coaching stakeholders commit to actions. And these are actions that can never be undone. These actions sediment, for better or worse, into coaching outcomes, hopefully, improved athletes, better relationships. And actions generally have been given most attention in behavioral research literature. I think the problem with the the behavioural research literature doesn't really tend to the five other considerations I've just mentioned, but to my mind, actions and outcomes are implicitly or explicitly a feature of all the disciplinary perspectives. And this is the key point. All these things I mentioned, depth, embeddedness, complexity, contingency, goal orientation, resources, reasoning, reflecting, strategising, actions, outcomes, they're just just key features either implicitly or explicitly of all sport coaching research and to my mind, when I think about them, I think they're quite intuitively recognisable to us as researchers and coaches. But there's no disciplinary framework that explicitly and comfortably allows this work to come together.
0: Mm, and I guess this is where critical realism comes in?
1: Yes. I mean, if you, if you thought it was being complicated before, I'm just about to get a little bit even more complicated. So, pretty good. Cool. Yes, yeah. <laughs> But wait for this. This. Yes. This is... We get into the territory of Roy Baskar now, so, so Critical Realism and this was based on Roy Baskar's original work and his more recent work on the environment and disability before his death. He actually had a middle period which we don't talk about too much because it was quite esoteric and complex. But this, this, this kind of original work and this later work uh, provide an explicitly interdisciplinary framework which can be used in sport coaching but it's based on very sound philosophical principles for social scientific research. Now it takes me many podcasts to explain these principles. Very, yeah, but a very quick summary. And listeners must forgive me for this highly abstract excursion. So um, wait for this. So critical realism provides an ontology, and ontology is like a theory, uh, an abstract theory of the fundamental nature of reality that's grounded in materialism, causality, and emergence. So objects and structures, things in the world, combine emergently to provide increasing levels of complexity at different levels, the physical into the biological, the biological into the social, and eventually we work our way up to, to things complex, things like sport coaching. So comp- sport coaching has a very complex structure, but it has a material a biological foundation, but it's not reducible to them. So critical realism also provides an epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge and a methodology that's based on describing these structures and explaining how they causally interact to produce more complex structured outcomes. Uh, from a method point of view, it's compatible with both extensive or quantitative approaches and intensive qualitative designs. But using critical realist approach, most sport coaching research, I would say, is likely to sit on the more intensive qualitative side. The approach is explicitly, explicitly fallibilist and humble. That means that it recognizes that achieving knowledge about the world is difficult, that we often get it wrong, but that knowledge can be generated which has some traction on this reality and, and it can be useful. I think to my mind it draws both on scientific realism that's worked so well in the hard scientists, sciences, notably kind of the explicit acceptance of unobservable and unobservable mechanisms. If you think about physics, a lot of what comes out of physics is about things that we can't see. But it also recognises uh, from a social scientific point of view the semantic and listic dimensions of social life explored by interpretive and constructionist positions, but it, to my mind, it's quite a not. It doesn't quite a novel and coherent way for the social sciences. <laughs> so there's, there's CR in in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> the listeners can switch back on now. So so to, yeah. <laughs> so to the final piece of the jigsaw so relation to your question. So. A number of, number of critical realist-orientated sociologists and evaluation specialists, and I'm thinking of people like Margaret Archer and Ray Pawson have taken this kind of um, philosophical system and developed it to provide concepts that kind of work in more social research. What, again, technical, they provide a specific biopsychosocial ontology, and, it, and it, this tends to look very, very similar to those characteristics, those six characteristics I described in sport coaching research earlier. So Pawson talks about reasoning resources, Archer talks about strategies, etc. These are concepts available from the, from the, the literature but can always be traced back to their philosophical foundations. So I can now answer your question. So critical realism provides a philosophically sound approach to interdisciplinary social science, provides concepts that are remarkably similar to those identified across the disciplines in sport coaching research. There's a kind of symmetry, a congruence of ideas between philosophy and the reading across sport coaching research, although they come from very different places, and look, it took a lot of work to do this, but I thought identifying them and bringing them out, bringing them out, will be very interesting and useful for the development of sport coaching research.
0: You propose the E R E model. Embedded, relational, and emergent as both an ontology and theory for uh, sport coaching research. In what way can the ERE model make research more meaningful and more impactful?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I've just described the ERE model. I mean, it suggests we place ourselves in a better position to understand the research sport coaching if we tend to its depth, embeddedness, and complexity, its goal orientation, its resources, its reasoning, reflecting strategy, strategizing, action outcomes. All these elements are an important part of the sport sport coaching puzzle. So to my mind, although different disciplinary positions at least implicitly recognize these elements, as I've noted before when I've looked across the literature, they tend to focus, focus their energies on particular aspects. So cognitive researchers tend to focus on individual resources and reasoning, but not much on embeddedness and actions. Behavioral researchers tend to focus mainly on coaches' actions complexity researchers, notably the early work of the French complexity researchers and the great work done by Soren Durand. This focuses on many of these aspects, but the underpinning framework we're still developing, to my mind leads some, to some questionable conclusions. Uh, the sociologists tend to focus on embeddedness and complexity and social resources and actions, but say less about goal orientation, reasoning, reflecting and strategizing. And to my mind, they tend to reduce uh, the power and potential of individual agency. Now, I must say, um, at this stage, I think all of this, this disciplinary work, you know, these disciplinary perspectives does fantastic work, and they've pushed the field ahead immeasurably. There's no discipline bashing going on here. I'm trying to build from that. I mean, I think we should really continue this work. But I guess my argument is that each of these positions reduces the focus to a partial glimpse. For example, if we just focus on actions, we're we're missing something. So when policymakers and practitioners read this research, they are left with a partial impression. They say, okay, yes, I understand what the researcher is doing here, but what about the rest? So the ERE model attempts to address this by capturing the totality of coaching as indicated by analysis of all the components identified and, crucially, how they work together suppose an issue is what we're going through breadth we might lose in depth, but not necessarily so. If, if by taking a wider perspective we recognise there is something interesting in the coaching context, for example in the work I did and how coaches use humour, then we can explore this further using specific disciplinary resources. Much depends on how much time we've got, how much resources we have to research, how far we want to go. But the point is not to close down options before we start doing research by adopting a particular disciplinary stance, which invites a particular focus of attention and in particular ways. So to answer your question then, my view is that this this broader perspective provides a more recognisable picture of sport coaching, one that's more accountable to stakeholders and with it potentially to be more useful or as you you say, more impactful and uh, meaningful.
0: Speaking for myself, your book is not the easiest read, uh, with a lot of uh, big words and uh, terminology that may be uh, unfamiliar for most readers, especially if they are students. Putting your coach and lecturer hat on, um, how would you advise those interested in understanding your ideas to approach your book?
1: We can still be friends, Francisco. Um, when I wrote the book, I actually tried my hardest to express the ideas in as simple a way as possible while while still allowing for sophistication in the argument. I really did try to work hard on the writing. Um, and, and some elements, in, in my opinion, of spot-catching research literature can sometimes be willfully obscure, and I really tried to work hard to decode what they were trying to say. However, I think when I look at the book now, as I did for this interview, I can understand why you say it's not an easy read, Meta-theory, critical realism within it, presenting ideas and languages are not easy to grasp, and the overall arguments expressed in the book are very integrated. Each part of the argument demands an understanding of the other part. But in in my view, there's no quick fixes when it comes to research. Researchers must know the tools of their trade, research philosophy, meta-theory, methodology, method, as well as their subject-specific knowledge they shouldn't be siloed. I mean, I've read a lot of research philosophy books and critical realist texts, but I also try to read as much as I can of other perspectives and theories as well, and I'll try my best. I mean, the comes from a sociological perspective. I find Bourdieu virtually impossible to read in English, and, uh, but people tell me it's easier in French, but I don't know. Maybe you have a view. Um, the reality um, is I think you just have to read, research, write, read, research, write over and over again. Um, if I can think of one practical tip, I tend to write what, lots of what I call memos. So, whenever I'm reading something, it will typically trigger a thought which may or not relate to the project I'm working on. I always make a note, develop a dated memo of the idea, its background, and its implications. I think it's really important to keep hold of these ideas because they are fuel for future work. And I think I have about a working folders of about 40 papers which are gradually being filled with memos. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not necessarily the most politic of writers and publishers because I just have to do so much consultancy work, but one day there will be an explosion.
0: <laughs> Another interesting aspect of your book uh, is a call for researchers to take more risks, adding a creative flair and uh, imagination to existing rational, um, logical models of thought. You refer to adding breadth to depth. Could you give an example of how this creativity uh, could look like?
1: Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's interesting you use the phrase rational and logic models of thought. I mean, rational, rationality and indeed logic has taken a bit of a bashing in some parts of the sport coaching literature. But I think this line of argument misses the point. There are lots of different modes of rational thought. And, you know, what's the opposite of rationality? It's irrationality. Do we want this? It's, 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 an interest, it's interesting that those who question rationality use very rational logic, logical, polemical structures and language in the arguments they express. I mean, they do this because they want to be understood, and I think my view is that we're in very dangerous territory indeed if we're seriously questioning rationality as a way of thinking about sport coaching or anything else for that matter. Regarding your question about risk, creativity, and how it links to breadth and sport coaching research, I suppose this takes us back to the beginning of our discussion of my time at Sports Coach UK. I, I identified what I thought was something troubling about the academic disciplines informing sport and sport, coach, sport coaching research. In my background, it was primarily in economics with a little bits of psychology and sociology thrown in. It wasn't sport in my academic background. And so it, was diffi- it wasn't It was difficult for me to step outside the specific sport disciplines because I was never in them. I mean, I'm st- it still makes me a target. So kind of, from a sports perspective, the psychologists accuse me of being a sociologist and the sociologists accuse me of being a psychologist. But I think it is a risk for others of those co- who have come through a sport disciplinary system Disciplines are very powerful holders on ideas, practices, and careers, and we can become blind to them. Um, a few um, colleagues uh, and I were at a, um, an event at the 2017 Global Coaches Conference in Liverpool, and they asked an audience uh, there a presentation we were doing on this kind of thing, actually, how many were aware of, that they were working in a specific discipline with specific assumptions, and there may be legitimate problems with these assumptions. Out of a room of about 50, I think probably three hands went up. And you just have to be brave to challenge the thinking in your own, your own disciplines. Now, in my view, a major problem is that disciplines have a habit of recycling many of the same ideas, often wearing slightly different clothing. To move forward, to be creative, in my view, we need to take the best from disciplines but move beyond the stasis that is inherent within them. Most of the best ideas in sport coaching research have come from a tent attempts to integrate disciplines from multidisciplinary work and indeed, indeed interdisciplinary work. And here I'm, I'm with the physicist Carlo Rovelli, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's, um, he's, he's, he kind of writes a few popular science books, but he, he talks about using philosophy to resolve tensions in physics, you know, between theories of the very big and the very small. And philosophy, to my mind, can play a similar role in spot coaching research. He offers role by broadening thought to offer new solutions to all the problems. And that's the path I've certainly gone down and I hope others can benefit from it.
0: Finally, the question I ask all our main guests, from your experience as a student and uh, as a lecturer, what is the most important lesson you have learned that you believe could serve as a good piece of advice for uh, PhD students and early career academics?
1: You'll be uh, glad to hear that my answer to this one is going to be fairly short, but uh, <laughs> when, uh, <laughs> but um, really I just think you just have to keep an open mind, you have to read lots of stuff that that, that challenges but also, um, you know, you sort of reinforces what you do but also challenges what you do. Also moving from the policy and practice side um, into the academic side, I just feel that the important lesson for me is about being humble about academic research and respecting other types of knowledge, including knowledge
0: of practitioners and people who have worked in policy, because there's always a different perspective. And that was our interview with Dr. Julian North, a senior research fellow at uh, Leeds Beckett University. Don't forget, uh, if you want to learn more about uh, critical realism and sport coaching research, you can read his book, Sport Coaching, Research and Practice, Ontology, Interdisciplinarity and Critical Realism. And now, we move on to our first-ever PhD chat. This month, we have Tom Leader, third-year PhD student at East Anglia University. Tom has completed his BA in Physical Education at East Anglia and then moved on to Loughborough to complete an MSc in Sport Coaching. In 2016, he returned to East Anglia, where he is now working on his doctoral degree. You can follow him on Twitter at TomLeader, Leader together, and leader spelled with double e. It's time to meet Tom and learn a little bit more about his exciting journey. <laughs> Tom, uh, welcome to Coaching with an Accent. Thanks for accepting my uh, invitation. I'm going to start by asking you the big question. What is your PhD about?
2: (laughs) Yeah, the famous question. Um, Well, essentially, my research looks to explore how sports coach mentors learn and develop. So looking at the sports coaching literature over the past maybe 15, 20 years, there's been a big emphasis on, on how coaches learn and develop. Um, whether that's looking at coach education or traditionally we've looked at their learning situations they are engaged with and all things like that but from my perspective there seems to be a gap in actually how coach developers learn and develop so who are these individuals who are supporting coaches so supporting their learning and what are their learning needs and what are their sort of development pathways so to speak so I'm quite interested in how individuals transition from being a coach so working with their players and athletes, then becoming a mentor, so then working with coaches, working with adult learners. My research is working with the Football Association on their FA Coach Mentor Programme. So from my particular uh, focus, and my particular interest, I use uh, the sociology of, of Pierre Bourdieu and its uh, more recent adaptation by Phil Hodgkinson and colleagues, who does a lot of work within the sort of workplace learning literature, but I'm quite interested in how individual dispositions, how the culture of the FA as a national governing body, all of these factors kind of combine into how mentors learn and develop essentially. Um, so I think there is uh, a gap there, which our understanding within the sports coaching literature particularly isn't, isn't too aware of. So hopefully my research can try and, try and plug that area a little bit.
0: So we hear quite often that there's a gap between academia and the work of uh, practitioners. I understand that, um, as you just mentioned, throughout your PhD you have been working in a partnership with the English Football Association. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, about that experience? Yeah, so it's, for me personally, it's been quite positive. So
2: when I first sort of was thinking of um, my area of research that I wanted my PhD to be conducted sort of within, I contacted a number of national governing bodies who i knew were were running formalized mentoring programs so i contacted a few and as a as a football coach myself obviously the, the fa seemed to be a quite a straightforward choice to try and go to first so i contacted the fa about um, you know my research ideas what i wanted to look into and they were very accommodating from the start so we had a few a few meetings and we wanted to be clear on on whether uh, my research aims met their research aims, so to speak, or, or their areas of interest as well. Um, and after a few a few meetings, um, we sort of got down to sort of the key research questions and you know my methodology, who I wanted to speak to, how I wanted to collect my data. And since then, they've been they've been great, to be honest. So the FA isn't funding uh, my PhD. They don't have any sort of financial interest per se in my research, but actually in terms of their their general interest and enthusiasm towards my work they've been you know they've been fantastic to be honest and and i've you know it's been a really positive experience from the off um and hopefully you know they can see that the findings from my research will hopefully you know give them something to to work with in terms of how they prepare and train the, the fa coach mentors and that that's ultimately the aim i think of of research essentially we, we do all, we do all our uh we conduct all our work we, we get all our findings but we all want practical invitations and, and recommendations we want to see change happen from it so hopefully from from working with the fa they can see that my research will will give them something to you know that they can work with to improve the the experience and obviously the learning and development of the mentors essentially but in short no it's been a it's been a good experience so far um and hopefully you know it, it continues for
0: the the foreseeable future um, I understand you're now in the third year of your uh, of your PhD. Do you have already any ideas of what you'd like to do um, once you once you finish uh, your PhD?
2: Yeah. So I, my my third year started uh, at the beginning of this month, at so the beginning of October. And for me, I'm I really love to work in in higher education. You know, as a as a lecturer within the within the sports coaching field. So that's my aim and my ambition. And I think for us as as phd researchers i think the phd nowadays is is probably not enough and i think we need to and something i'm constantly working on on now as well as that need to to develop a research profile to, to attend conferences to get publications to get book chapters out whatever it may be alongside trying to get teaching experience i think as as phd students there's a lot of um there's a lot of expectation to do, you know, uh, lots of things at once and, and there's not always the uh, all the time to do it. But for me, I think at the minute I feel um, I know what I want to do. Like I say, I'll, I want to go into working within higher education. I want to be uh, working as a lecturer, although I'm still interested in, in, in my coaching as a practitioner. I think that's always important as well to, to keep your, your foot in the door and to keep, you know, applying the theories or practice what you preach, so to speak. So I'd love to still work. Um, in a coaching capacity, but looking sort of long term working with higher edu- working within higher education is my aim so i 'm working really hard at the minute to like i say work on publications, go to conferences. Luckily enough this year i 've been able to get some teaching experience and some uh, dissertation undergraduate dissertation supervising experience as well so i'm on hopefully i 'm doing the right things um, I know what i want to want to try and achieve so i 'm just kind of working hard to juggle everything at once which is obviously the uh the challenge and obviously finishing the phd is probably the uh the main thing if i don't continue to get sidetracked but um no that's my that's my long-term aim anyway and um yeah i think like i say just i keep working on, on different things and hopefully it'll put me in a good position come come the end of my phd to begin applying for you know jobs or post whatever it may be so we'll see how it goes
0: um, my final question is about the the PhD itself. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the best and also the most challenging moments of this uh, doctoral adventure? I think for me, one of the most challenging ones is that
2: when when you first start, so your first your first year is kind of it's quite it's quite difficult to really nail on and 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 exactly kind of hone in on the re- what your research is and what you want to find out. You know, finding that that gap in the literature working out what your contribution to knowledge is going to be so that first year of actually okay you've gone from undergraduate uh, to master's level and you're now now at that PhD level where you have your supervisors and my supervisors have have, have been fantastic but a lot of the time you are obviously working you know working on your own that independent study that independent um the step up from from master's and undergraduate so initially that first year was quite challenging, um, like I say, to really, you know, you question yourself, you doubt yourself whether you can, you know, write academically at that level, um, whether, you know, you're good enough, so to speak. So I think there are, they're the, they're the tough times. And when, you know, you're sitting there looking at, you know, past PhDs or, or, or articles within the field and you just think, oh, I can never write like this, I can never do this. And, yeah, that, doubting yourself is probably, you know, one of the hardest things. Um, that's you know that's an ongoing thing but I think especially within that first year when you have a bit of a bit of a culture shock as well whether you're moving to a a new institution or whether in my case you're coming back to an institution that I've done my undergraduate at Um, so that sort of change in in scenery change in environment was a little bit different Um, but in terms of the most rewarding or best parts of things I think just going to you know that that feeling, that buzz you get when you go to conferences where you, where you meet the academics who you know you've been reading their work for so many years, and you get to meet them in person and discuss your own research interests. And I think that that buzz you get when when people actually take an interest in your work, and people ask questions, and, and people say to you, "Oh, well, wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that," etc., etc. So I think those kind of feelings and those moments when you think, "Wow, people actually care," and I think that sounds a little might sound a little bit silly, but that feeling you get when people show an interest and, and, and you meet, you know, these high, you know, well well cited academics in the field and they're taking an interest and, you know, you read, like I said, you read their papers for so many years and then you meet them in person and you think, oh, I didn't think that person would be like that or or the opposite, whatever the case may be. So, I think that's one of the really rewarding parts and I think as well one of the really enjoyable parts is trying to develop a a support network so I think In my case, um, I've got some good friends who are at other institutions around around England, around the UK and and elsewhere around the world who, for me, have been fantastic in terms of they're doing PhDs or have done PhDs within the sports coaching field. And they've always been there to, you know, if I want to send them drafts of my writing, we want to talk about some concepts or theories, we want to discuss things. You know having people there to offer you critical feedback as well as obviously your supervisors, but other people who are in the same boat as you, so other doctoral students um, having that support network and having people you know that you can draw upon and and you know if you're stressed out about something or you know something's worrying you, you know people that you're not on your own. I think that's the key thing as well, so build up a support network for people who are at your institution or even better' if they're, you know in other places as well 'cause obviously there's different procedures and different practices et cetera but being able to learn off one another and support one another, for me, it's been really positive. And coming into, like you say, coming into my third year uh, or just started my third year now when I'm really getting into the bulk of my writing to have people there who I know are willing to, to give up their time to read drafts as well as, you know, all the other commitments they have. I think that's really good and, and that's really positive. So for me, I feel like um, I'm in a good place at the minute, but I'd encourage anyone to, yeah, try and build up build up a a, support network, use Twitter, use LinkedIn, you know, whatever it may be, just try and, you know, network and reach out to people and I think that will in the long run really be,
0: really be beneficial. And that was our first ever PhD chat. If you are a PhD student and want to showcase your research, drop us a message on our Twitter page at Coaching Accent. Before we go, just a quick note. The Football Collective Conference will take place in Glasgow, Scotland between the 29th and 30th November. This year's edition will focus on challenging the narrative, critical thinking in football. The conference is almost sold out, so you need to be quick if you still want to grab one of the two tickets available. And that's all for this October edition. You can continue to follow us on Twitter at CoachingAccent and send us your suggestions for future guests and topics. We will be back again in November with another guest, another PhD student, more events, and obviously the same accent. Bye!